This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the 2017 Dewey Lecture in Law and Philosophy. And we are very pleased and honored to welcome Henry Shu, who is the Senior Research Fellow at the Center of International Studies at Merton College at, Oxford, at the University of Oxford. And I will give him an introduction. Professor Martha Nussbaum will give him an introduction. I just wanted to let you, uh, to welcome you and to say a few words about the lecture series. Uh, the lecture series was founded uh, almost 30 years ago in honor of John Dewey. And Dewey's connection to the University of Chicago uh, is, was very deep. Uh, from the university's inception in 1894 all the way through 1904, Dewey was the chair of the uh, university's philosophy department. And during that time, he founded what came to be known as the Chicago School of Pragmatism, an intellectual movement that applied scientific methods to societal problems. In addition, Dewey created the University of Chicago's laboratory schools in 1896. Now, then move forward almost 100 years to 1981 when our then dean of law school, Gerhard Casper, decided that the university and its specifically law school should recognize Dewey's ties to the universities and to his, legal, his legacy in legal theory. So Dean Casper corresponded with the philosopher Sidney Cook, who was then president of the John Dewey Foundation and inquired about potentially establishing a lectureship in Dewey's name at the law school. Book readily agreed, uh, and thus the Dewey Lectureship in Jurisprudence was created. And the lectureship has a tremendous history. Uh, many distinguished uh, philosophers have given it. Ronald Dworkin, Richard Gorty, Amartya Sen, among others. In fact, uh, John Rawls's famous paper, The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, was a Dewey Lecture and was published in our own law review. So our law school was founded on the idea that lawyers need to know more than just doctrine, legal doctrine or black letter law, that the theoretical underpinnings of ideas of laws and lawmaking are really crucial and indistinguishable from an effective legal education. So I'm very pleased to welcome you all to the 2017 Dewey Lecture. And to introduce this year's distinguished lecturer, I'm going to ask Martha Nussbaum to, to do so. I'll give her a very brief introduction, because I was told not to give a long introduction of Professor Nussbaum. She is the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor in Law and Ethics. She's appointed both in law school and in the Department of Philosophy. She's an associate in the Classics Department in the Divinity School and the Political Science Department. She also serves as a member of the Committee on the Southern on Committee on Southern Asian Studies and as a board member of the Human Rights Program. She has received numerous uh, prizes. Uh, I will simply mention just one of those, most recently the Kyoto Prize in Arts and Philosophy. Uh, she has, I believe, 56 honorary degrees from countries from universities around the world. Uh, and she is the author and editor of numerous books. Again, I won't mention all of them. I'll just mention the most recent one, Aging Thoughtfully, with Professor Salva Moore, has just recently been published. In fact, I think just this month. So it is my pleasure to welcome, to introduce our 2017 Dewey Lecturer, Professor Martha Osborne.
Well, it's a very great pleasure to welcome Henry Shu to deliver the 2017 Dewey Lecture. Shu is currently Senior Research Fellow at the Center for International Studies of the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford University, Professor Emeritus of Politics and International Relations, and Senior Research Fellow Emeritus at Merton College. Now, those who are familiar with contemporary philosophical discussions of justice will know Shu as one of the most eloquent voices in the philosophical discussion of global inequality, including poverty and hunger, war, displacement, torture, nuclear deterrence, and most recently, climate change and environmental ethics. I often hear people in other fields, such as economics and political science, speak of Shu as the most convincing, rigorous, and helpful voice coming out of philosophy, someone who commands the data and then argues very clearly and eloquently. His books, Basic Rights and Climate Justice, are as highly respected as they are widely read, and they're now joined by his 2016 book, Fighting Hurt, Rule and Exception in Torture and War. But those who are not as old as I am will perhaps think that philosophers have always been addressing these urgent public issues. It's just the shoe does it exceptionally well. They will then be missing a central aspect, I think, of Shu's contribution, which has been to put public political philosophy in general and global justice in particular on the agenda of the profession and to create interdisciplinary programs in which philosophers can learn and exchange with others so that their work is truly pertinent to the problem. A founder of the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at the University of Maryland, which was a pioneering and still a very important institution. Shu then transferred his institution-building skills to Cornell University, where he was professor of ethics and public life for a number of years until he accepted the professorship at Oxford. In all three universities, he shaped the institution and its conversations, generating interdisciplinary discussions that didn't exist before. And indeed, the whole field of applied ethics was struggling for a long time and was held in some disdain by many highbrow philosophers, with the partial exception of bioethics, which attained respectability a little bit earlier. But now, things are really very different. Political philosophers ignore global issues at peril of irrelevance. And for young people entering the field, there's no better paradigm of both how to write and how to cross disciplinary boundaries while retaining philosophical rigor than Henry Shu's work. But Shu is also famous as a teacher of the best sort, challenging, inspiring, but also deeply humane and conscientious. I urge you later to look up on Google an article in the magazine called Ezra Magazine. It's like the Cornell alumni magazine by Jeffrey Gettleman, who was then, when he wrote the article, the East Africa Bureau Chief for the New York Times and won a Pulitzer Prize in 2012. He's now the South Asia Bureau Chief. And uh, the article is entitled, A Professor's Lasting Impact. And Gettleman describes his experience walking into Shu's class as, quote, a hungover 19-year-old with a dirty Ohio State baseball cap on backwards and greasy locks hanging out. But, says Gettleman, he didn't care. He enthusiastically engaged students who took an interest in his teaching and would treat us all as colleagues with valid arguments. He seemed to really enjoy the back and forth, and he wanted to know our ideas, end quote. Gettleman was aware 
the shoe is a star in his field, but that never got in the way of his dedication to teaching and his deep interest in students as people. He adds that Shu, whom he continues to visit every year in Oxford, has a very keen sense of direction and is particularly good at walking through the pouring rain in the Cotswold Hills, reading an ordnance survey map held upside down. <laughs> well, we need this keen sense of direction in order to grapple with one of the most urgent ethical issues in our world. So it's really great to welcome Henry Hsu to deliver the Dewey Lecture on gambling with their climate, future generations, negative emissions, and risk transfers. Well, that was an exceptionally, although characteristically uh, kind introduction from uh, Martha, I'm afraid now if I uh, say anything, my reputation can only uh, suffer. But uh, it is a great honor, of course, to uh, have the opportunity to deliver a Dewey Lecture. And uh, I'm very grateful to Dean Miles and Professor Nussbaum and their colleagues for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to come to the University of Chicago, and I have come before because you are this bastion of respectful but vigorous intellectual encounter, which is a model that our society sorely needs at the moment when it seems to be drifting into warring camps who seem able only to avoid or abuse each other rather than uh, rigorously and uh, probingly talk to each other. So, for all these reasons, I'm uh, very grateful to be here. I want to explore the relation between present-day ambition to stop contributing to climate change and the risk of danger for future generations. So, this lecture will be a normative analysis of the structure of the risks created by any decision about how ambitiously to mitigate the primary factor forcing climate change, which of course is carbon dioxide. My three main theses are, first, that all decisions about the degree of ambition for emissions mitigation are unavoidably also decisions about how to distribute risk across generations. And more specifically, Second, that the less ambitious the mitigation is, the more inherently objectionable the resulting intergenerational risk distribution is. And third, that mitigation that is so lacking in ambition that it bequeaths risks that remain unlimited when the risk could have been limited without inordinate sacrifice is especially objectionable and constitutes a failure to seize a glorious historic opportunity that's open to us. This normative structural analysis of risk then has strong implications for the standards by which national implementation of the 2050, sorry, 2015 Paris Agreement ought to be assessed 
an issue that's being discussed this week at the Fiji COP uh, located in Bonn. Mitigation is more ambitious insofar as it contributes to reaching zero emissions of carbon dioxide globally at an earlier date and therefore at a lower level of cumulative atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide. The ambition of a national commitment to mitigation refers not only to the extent of the decarbonization to be conducted within a nation's own borders, but also to the extent of that same nation's support for decarbonization to be carried out elsewhere. And these two things together have aptly been called the dual obligation for mitigation. A nation's responsibility for mitigation may exceed its economically sensible capacity to reduce its own domestic emissions. In that case, it ought to provide financial or technological transfers that make the reduction of emissions elsewhere, sorry, that enable the reduction of emissions elsewhere to the extent of its own remaining unfulfilled responsibility to bring about emissions reductions. So ambition, in the sense discussed here, combines a nation's nationally determined contribution, or NDC, to use the jargon of the climate negotiations, regarding reduction of its internal emissions with its financial and technological commitments in support of reduction of emissions elsewhere. How the ambition of individual nations should be divided between internal emissions reductions and external emissions reductions may be heavily dependent upon efficiency considerations, but its total effort should reflect its national responsibility, the extent of which, of course, has to be argued for philosophically, although that's a separate argument from the one I'm going to make now. Every risk as Hermanson and Hansen noted, involves, quote, three roles, namely the risk exposed, the decision maker, and the beneficiary, end quote. The three roles may be occupied respectively by one, two, or three parties. How the roles are allocated among parties gives the risk what I'm calling its structure. In the simplest case, all three roles are occupied by the same person who chooses to gamble and receives the benefits or suffers the losses of the gamble. If instead, for example, the decision maker is one party and a single other person is both the possible beneficiary and the risk exposed, the structure of the choice may be paternalistic. The legislature requires motorcycle helmets and cyclists both benefit from greater safety and suffer the loss of the thrill from the greater danger of having no helmet. Or, to see a different structure, take the choice by a firm to externalize the environmental costs of its operations. The firm is the decision maker about how much to pollute and it is itself the beneficiary of the reduced costs relative to controlling the pollution, while third parties suffer from the risks created by the pollution. In this case, 
The public is used for pollution disposal in order to reduce production costs for the firm. So the structure is exploitative. Philosopher John Rawls called attention to a simple situation for choice between two alternatives, which I've modified in important respects, partly following Steve Gardner. Alternative A has a high probability of producing a satisfactory outcome. Alternative B has three specific features. It, it might produce trivial relative gains compared to choice A. It might produce significant relative losses compared to A. And third, knowledge of the probability that it might produce the trivial gains rather than the significant losses, quoting Rawls, is impossible or at best extremely insecure, end quote. Obviously, choosing alternative B would be paradigmatically imprudent. This alternative is a very bad gamble, risking a substantial loss for the sake of a trivial gain in circumstances of uncertainty. The fundamental choice with regard to climate change is how ambitious to be about mitigation, about when to bring carbon emissions to zero globally and leave behind the era of fossil fuels, the extraction and transport of which pollutes land, water, and air, and the combustion of which pollutes the air in multiple ways, and specifically through the release of carbon dioxide, undermines the climate to which humans and other living things have adapted. While a few of the national mitigation pledges, the nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, made at Paris in 2015, may have been adequate tentative first steps, most of the NDCs ranged in ambition from the merely minimal to the paltry. As people think of generations, at any given time, three generations are alive, grandparents, parents, and children. I'll refer to these three together simply as the current generations. More ambitious mitigation would clearly impose some costs on some segments of the current generations. Nevertheless, insofar as contemporaries have in place fair distributive mechanisms, lives in current generations would not need to be overall less satisfactory because of ambitious mitigation than they would have been without ambitious mitigation. If any necessary sacrifices for the sake of ambitious mitigation are shared fairly, and this fairness is a crucial assumption, all lives in the current generation could remain as satisfactory as they otherwise would have been. It won't fix anything, but it needn't make it worse. On the assumptions just sketched, we can compare the situation of current generations taken together with the situation of the individual discussed by Rawls. Like that individual, current generations must choose between two options. In this case, two tendencies in mitigation, more ambitious and less ambitious. More ambitious mitigation by current generations with fair institutions 
could allow no less satisfactory outcomes for everyone. On the other hand, to the extent that mitigation was less ambitious, it would tend to have three features. First, it might produce trivial relative gains compared to more ambitious mitigation by avoiding some expense, effort, and disruption. Second, it might produce significant relative losses compared to more ambitious mitigation by postponing the date of zero carbon and thereby allowing climate change to become worse than it would have if mitigation were more ambitious. And three, knowledge of the probability that it might produce the trivial gains but not the significant losses, quoting Rawls again, is impossible or at best extremely insecure. David Weisbach has described what I take to be the same gamble between more and less ambitious mitigation as follows. Quote, uncertainty about the effects of climate change strengthens these conclusions because the uncertainty is not symmetric. If we do nothing or act too slowly, the bad cases, if things turn out worse than expected, are far worse then the good cases are good if things turn out better than expected, end quote. So the gamble on less ambitious mitigation is clearly at least as bad a gamble as the paradigm imprudent gamble that could have been taken by the individual described at the start following Rawls. And the less ambitious the mitigation, the worse the gamble, other things equal, because the longer the period during which climate change can grow worse or even become catastrophic. The alternatives in the Rawlsian case and the alternatives in the climate change case are not perfectly parallel. Rawls simply compares two fixed alternatives, A and B. Mitigation involves degrees relatively more ambitious and relatively less ambitious mitigation. But a comparison reveals two other monumentally morally important differences between the structures of these two gambles. In the Rawlsian case, first, the possible gains or losses would go to the same individual, and second, the recipient of the possible gains and losses is the person who decides whether to take the bad gamble. In contrast, in the mitigation case, the possible gains and losses would go respectively to different generations. The gains would go to current generations who would avoid whatever expense, effort, or disruption would be involved in speeding up the energy transition through more ambitious mitigation but the losses would go to future generations who would suffer whatever consequences resulted from worsened climate change occurring during the additional time prior to zero carbon emissions made available by the less ambitious mitigation. So first, the mitigation gamble is possible gains for us, possible losses for them, and second, the decision whether to take the mitigation gamble is entirely in the hands of the generations 
who can only gain current generations. The potential winners have all the power, while the future generations who can only lose have no say whatsoever. The potential losers have no power. These two differences turn what was already a bad gamble into a genuinely awful gamble in which, for the sake of possible small gains, the current generations impose upon future generations whatever losses might result from climate change worsened by half-hearted mitigation. And this objectionable structure would be present even if we had no reason to think that losses for future generations were especially likely or especially severe, a topic to which I'll return. In the instance of the choice between less ambitious and more ambitious mitigation, the three roles that every risk involves are occupied by only two parties then. One party, the current generations taken together, is both decision maker and potential beneficiary. The risk exposed is every future generation. This is why decisions on mitigation are decisions on risk distribution across generations. This structure in which one party decides and potentially benefits itself while another party is risk exposed is exploitative. The decision maker uses the risk exposed as a means of potential benefit to the decision maker itself. This exploitative structure is exactly the same as the structure of the choice by a firm to externalize the costs of its pollution. Less ambitious mitigation externalizes risks from current generations to future generations in order to save us moderate costs and inconvenience. This much is clear simply from the structure of the mitigation gamble. Now, what about severity? We have perfectly ordinary and obvious reasons why action to stop climate change from worsening is urgent. Because the political change needed in order to reach zero carbon is wide and deep and will therefore take time, we simply cannot speed up too soon. Bringing carbon emissions to net zero is not a matter merely of changing from one technology to another, like canceling your cable TV and switching to Netflix or unscrewing incandescent bulbs and inserting LEDs. At bottom, we do need to change from carbon-based energy to carbon-free energy. But marketing carbon-based energy is the source of wealth for what is arguably the most powerful complex of multinational institutions in the world, with tentacles that reach deep into our main political and economic structures and cling tightly. Many of the largest fossil fuel companies are state-owned. Saudi Arabia's Saudi Aramco, Russia's Gazprom, the National Iranian Oil Company, PetroChina, Coal India, for example. And the investor-owned firms are huge. ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, and Total, for example. BP and Gazprom are interlinked 
as are other state-owned and investor-owned firms. Then there are the supertanker fleets, the refineries, the liquefied natural gas facilities, the pipelines, the coal cars, and the banks, which have loaned the capital for the industry's infrastructure and are waiting to be repaid. And the lobbyists, PR firms, kept think tanks, kept intellectuals, and front organizations who tell the lies. It goes without saying that state-owned companies are deeply embedded in the political and economic institutions of powerful nations, but so are the investor-owned companies on whose, on whose campaign contributions many a senator and representative is dependent. Public funds gush into the coffers of fossil fuel companies as subsidies. Global government subsidies in 2015 were estimated by the IMF to be 5.3 trillion, which is 6.5% of the global economic product perversely wasted on fossil fuel subsidies, more than the world's total expenditure on public health. The U.S. government handed over $600 billion from U.S. taxpayers to fossil fuel firms in 2015. And this, of course, is prior to the Trump regime. This massive web of vested, interlocked interests in wealth and power will take a while to undermine and disentangle. These are profoundly recalcitrant institutions the moral seems obvious. Since this is difficult and will take a while, but must be done, we need to get started aggressively. This requires more than allowing the market to accept non-carbon energy at its own admittedly quickening pace. We must also, for example, get infrastructure for non-carbon energy production and transmission into developing nations who cannot afford both to adapt to the destructive climate changes that already threaten them and to construct new energy infrastructure so that their struggle to develop doesn't lock them into the infrastructure of the carbon energy regime that needs to die. So we need positive social action internationally. The longer it takes to put a lid on damage from climate change, the more that societies will have to devote to cleaning up after escalating damage from worsening climate. This is especially true for poorer countries whose structures and infrastructures are less resilient to begin with. Poorer countries and territories suffer more damage from the same climate events that do less damage to richer countries, as we've recently seen once again in the hurricanes. If climate continues to get worse, poorer countries will need to spend more to adapt to current threats, that is, to try to prevent future damage, leaving still less for emissions reduction. So both spending more for repairing past damage and more for trying to prevent future damage will create the vicious circle that there's less for mitigation and for the energy transition, and so there will be more damage in future unless others act to assist. 
with simultaneous energy transition and adaptation to damage already occurring. Now, I think all of this that I've just said constitutes a strong case for the urgency of action and maybe strong enough. But I'd like to explore one additional reason that I think is more interesting that's grounded in the unboundedness of climate change. The most elementary advice usually given to someone who plans to visit a gambling casino is decide while you're still at home how much is the maximum amount you can afford to lose and take only that much with you. In other words, put a firm limit on maximum losses. Those who opt for less ambitious mitigation than is readily possible are ignoring this basic advice with regard to future generations. They are leaving the door through which dangers of unknown magnitude for future generations can enter open for longer than it would need to remain open. They are leaving potential losses for people in the future unbounded. It's well established that as long as the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases and especially carbon dioxide continues to expand, climate change will continue to become more severe. And as long as carbon dioxide is emitted in amounts that produce net additions to the atmospheric concentration, the concentration will, of course, continue to expand. Accordingly, until global carbon emissions reach net zero, no outer limit on the maximum severity of climate change has been set. The severity of climate change can worsen indefinitely until carbon emissions reach zero and then go down from there. Decarbonization must be thorough and prompt in order to cap the atmospheric concentration, which requires more ambitious mitigation. The less ambitious mitigation is, the later the date that the atmospheric accumulation will stabilize, the longer the climate change remains unbounded, and the costs of the mitigation gamble have no limit. This is a special kind of danger, less obvious and difficult to judge judiciously. Human beings at their best are inexpressibly remarkable with their indomitable spirits and their unrelenting resilience. I don't generally recommend betting against the human race. And yet, human civilization can be surprisingly fragile. Remember the armed looters in the British Virgin Islands? in St. Martin after Hurricane Irma in September, stealing food and water from their neighbors, as often happens after disasters. Recall Golding's Lord of the Flies and Zimbardo's experiment in which his Stanford undergraduates, randomly assigned to role-play prison guards, quickly started force-feeding their classmates who had been assigned to play prisoners when the prisoners protested earlier rough treatment by fasting, frightening Zimbardo into abandoning the, abandoning the experiment very early. 
Remember how quickly the Hungarian government fenced out the Syrian refugees a couple of summers ago. Somewhere in the shadows of stress, the social norms begin to tear, partly because human individuals often do indeed not give up. That physical stresses lead to conflicting political demands and conflicting political demands can lead to tears in the social fabric is hardly a new insight. One may have supposed that Thomas Hobbes was displaying a capacity for dystopian imagination when he wrote, quote, there's no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no culture of the earth. No navigation or use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no arts, no letters, no society, and, which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, in short, end quote. But according to Jeffrey Parker's monumental global history, global crisis, war, climate change, and catastrophe in the 17th century, Hobbes actually didn't need to imagine anything. He needed only to look around at the state of the world. And what we have now realized was the little ice age, roughly the 1640s to the 1690s. The little ice age consisted of climate change of only a single degree of average global temperature, down rather than up, of course. But this modest bit of climate change, and especially the resultant disturbances to agricultural production and food prices, were one side of what Parker aptly called a fatal synergy that was an exacerbating factor in a global smorgasbord of troubles ranging from the Thirty Years' War in Europe to the violent Ming-Qing transition in China. Long before large numbers of individual people would collapse from heat stress, from, from global warming, their societies would be liable at some unpredictable point to become unable to summon farsightedness, fairness, or even cooperation and liable to disintegrate in conflicts over places to live and places to grow food and over priorities for the distribution of these places. Now let me try to be clear what I'm not suggesting. It's become in recent decades almost a tradition among moral philosophers talking about climate change to say that the apocalypse is around the corner. I don't think the apocalypse is around the corner, nor is human extinction, nor, for that matter even, is the Hobbesian unraveling of civilization that I've invoked. I'm appealing only to the solid fact that all these threatening possibilities, and many others less serious than these, but still serious, remain available until we stop feeding climate change and making it grow. Everything is possible until we make it impossible.
A climate that is worsening indefinitely leaves all the bad options open. We've inadvertently opened the barn door, and some of the horses have bolted, but other valuable horses, for reasons of their own, have lingered in the barn. For now, nothing is stopping them from leaving too. It's time then to relock the barn door. But someone may object that a rapid transition to zero carbon is too demanding to be reasonable to expect. More than current generations can be asked to do. My third thesis is that the risks for future generations ought not to be left unlimited when these risks can be limited without inordinate sacrifice. But this is vague and indeterminate. How can we get some grip on when a generational sacrifice is inordinate? Ordinarily, when we think about principles of intergenerational justice, we assume that there's a kind of standard formula that can be applied repetitively. Rawls said that when we're thinking about what principles should guide current generations to future generations, we should ask what principles we wish past generations had abided by with regard to us. So the past generations should have done such and such for us, and the current generations should similarly do the same for future generations. But there's a slippery and intriguing problem that's relevant to our subject of placing a limit on maximum risk. What if some generations are called upon to make sacrifices that are unique to them, that do not fit any standard formula? Could this be? The climate scientists are telling us that we are now at an utterly crucial juncture. For a century and a half, carbon emissions were steadily climbing. Then, for the last three decades, they soared. Half of all the emissions since 1850 have occurred since 1986, during the lifetime of any grad students here. But for the last two or three years, total global emissions have on the whole leveled off. It's possible that we've reached peak global emissions at a very high peak because of all the emissions since 1986. But now we must, as the scientists put it, bend the emissions curve downward. That is, begin the steady decline in emissions at an angle across time that will bring the world to net zero carbon in two or three decades, certainly within the middle years of the lives of all of you who are students. Otherwise, the only way to hold total cumulative emissions to any total compatible with any remotely tolerable amount of temperature rise and other manifestations of climate change would be a later precipitous plunge in emissions that could only be either politically and economically impossible or utterly catastrophic. So the choices are a steady decline in emissions starting now, an unmanageable collapse in emissions later, or dangerous levels of climate change 
from too much accumulated carbon dioxide. I'm, of course, omitting all the shading in this picture, a little bit of which I'll return to presently, but this is the general outline. Any way you slice it, it is absolutely crucial what current generations, you, do now. My age group and I dropped the ball, but you can still pick it up. But later will be too late. This is it. We face what Martin Luther King Jr. called the fierce urgency of now. But surely you think, now I am getting carried away. This must ask too much of current generations, each member of which is living the only life she will ever live. How, as Churchill might say, could so much be asked of so few? Isn't the burden of bringing about the global energy revolution too heavy to expect current generations alone to bear? This is difficult to think about in a sensible way. In a way, it does seem unfair that the challenge for the current generations is so much greater than what we might call the average burden for the average generation. But what says that the benefits and burdens ought to be equal across generations? Or anyway, that if your burden would be heavier than average, you don't have to carry it. That would be an oddly ahistorical way of thinking. Perhaps the allusion to Churchill provides a hint. Was it fair? that the so-called greatest generation of the 1940s had to confront the Nazis? Wouldn't it have been fairer if the task could have been shared with, say, the people of the laid-back 60s when I was military age? But the people of the 60s could have helped to defeat the Nazis only if the Nazis were still in power in the 60s, presumably by then entrenched. It's a good thing for the rest of us that the generations of the 40s rose to the occasion, and we remember them proudly. The point of these rather strange musings is that while reasonable sacrifices certainly have some limit, that limit seems to have nothing to do with any notion of standard generational burdens, a notion that seems to lead nowhere. For better or for worse, you live when you live, you confront what you confront. You can embrace it or reject it. You're free in your response. But that response will have the effects that such a response has in such circumstances at that point in history. You choose your response, but history, made by the earlier responses of others to their circumstances, provides your circumstances. The people of the 60s could not help with the battles of the 1940s because one cannot reach backwards through history. The Hubble telescope can show us what happened millions of years ago, but it does not enable us to reach back and change the universe's course. For purposes of human action, time, for us, history, moves only forward. One cannot reach back to bring about change, but one can reach forward. 
In fact, one cannot avoid reaching forward. It's not that we could decide if we wished to reach forward and change history as if history were somehow already going to go in one direction until we reached forward and diverted it into a different direction from the one it had originally set. We are making the future, like it or not. It will be what we make it to be. More precisely, its starting place will be where we leave off. History is a continuing drama with narrative threads running through many generations. And if we allow climate change to grow by unknown increments of severity for an unspecified further period, the burdens that fall upon some future generations may vastly exceed the burdens that we face now. For example, arranging for cooperation then if social norms have tattered will be much harder, harder than arranging for cooperation now, as hard as that actually is. Shall we leave those future generations to bear a much heavier burden because we refused to bear a much lighter one? How severe their challenges will become depends on what we do now. If we don't shoulder our lighter burdens, their burdens will be heavier because of our inaction. Perhaps we should draw a line under the worst that climate change can do. It may be objected, however, that I'm ignoring relevant technological innovations. There's no such thing as finally setting the severity of climate change, it will be said, because any total atmospheric accumulation of carbon dioxide can subsequently be reduced. If there is overshoot, this can be corrected by negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal. The great majority of the IPCC scenarios that provide for the rise in average global temperature to be kept 2 degrees centigrade or, or, even, or not to mention 1.5 centigrade rely precisely on such a recovery from an overshoot in cumulative emissions thanks to one or more kinds of carbon dioxide removal. But I want to suggest that carbon dioxide removal is not a miracle cure for half-hearted mitigation. It may be reasonable for modelers to examine alternative scenarios employing various types of carbon dioxide removal deployed at different future dates and with different degrees of ambition. My concern about the modelers is how clearly they indicate the assumptions underlying their calculations, especially their assumptions about the feasibility of most of these technologies, few of which are proven. The main danger concerns the conclusions that may be drawn from the modeler's imagined scenarios for the appropriate level of ambition for mitigation by policymakers, either unwary or ill-informed policymakers, or policymakers pressured by lobbyists for fossil fuel interests 
and reluctant to give up large campaign contributions. My thesis now is that it would be a fatal error as a matter of public policy to relax mitigation from the most ambitious possible level because of a misguided confidence in what may be able to be accomplished by way of recovery from an overshoot through carbon dioxide removal. That is, the ambition of actual mitigation now ought not to be reduced on the basis of reliance on assumed later negative emissions. Here's why. That it might be safe to rely on a subsequent recovery from excessive emissions is dubious for a number of quite different reasons, including serious grounds for doubting the feasibility of the technologies at sufficient scale. Afforestation, for instance, is a proven technology for removing carbon dioxide, and we certainly need to plant vast additional numbers of trees as well as protecting existing forests. But we can't spare enough land and water for enough trees, at least not until most people choose vegetarian diets, which would free up vast amounts of land and water now devoted to growing feed for livestock production. And the same is true, the same problem about land and water, for the modeler's favorite technology, BECS, bioenergy, with carbon capture and transfer, which, in order to produce a significant reduction in carbon dioxide by itself, would require land equivalent to one or two Indias on which to grow the feedstock for the combustion. But the failing of all carbon dioxide removal technologies that I want to especially notice today is the ratchet effect of passing tipping points for the climate during the initial, even if temporary, process of overshoot. If some types of carbon dioxide removal could be made to work at global scale, then the atmospheric accumulation of carbon dioxide can come down as well as go up. But if that accumulation, even if it ultimately turns out to have been transitory itself, drives some crucial factor affecting the climate past a point of physical no return, that change in climate will be permanent in spite of the fact that the overshoot was temporary. And of course, temporary changes can produce permanent effects. For example, the cryogenic scientists who have concluded that the West Antarctic ice sheet probably is now irreversibly melting think that the reason why the melting is irreversible is that the crucial Thwaites Glacier is a marine-based ice sheet. That is, it rests on land, but that land is underwater. And as the land on which the ice rests moves away from the ocean, it slopes downward under the ice sheet. So the forward edge of the glacier at its grounding line, which is the last and highest point at which the ice sheet rests on land, is in contact with ocean water. 
This opens the glacier to basal melt by ocean heat flux. That is, warm ocean water can melt the front of the bottom edge of the ice sheet. If, as is the case with Thwaites Glacier, the land on which the ice rests slopes downward as it moves inland, the melting water is able to flow downhill, reducing the friction with the land under the ice sheet and allowing the ice to slide more rapidly into the sea. And no one has been able to see a way to stop this process of enhanced melting, which is pretty clearly underway in West Antarctica. But it's recently been discovered that the Totten Glacier, T-O-T-T-E-N, which is a pivotal feature of the East Antarctic ice sheet, just like the Thwaites Glacier in the West Antarctic, is also a marine-based ice sheet that several lines of evidence now suggest is also susceptible to basal melt by ocean heat flux. No one is claiming that the melting of East Antarctica has also already become irreversible. On the contrary, the point is that this may depend on what we do. So consider the following scenario. This is not a prediction. It's just a hypothetical scenario to illustrate why there's less to carbon dioxide removal than meets the eye. Suppose that the atmospheric concentration of CO2 continues to rise more than it would need to rise because of a policy choice to gamble on less ambitious mitigation. Later, this overshoot in carbon dioxide is reduced through some kind of carbon dioxide removal technology. But during this temporary period of overshoot, the additional atmospheric accumulation of carbon dioxide drives an increase in the temperature of the ocean water that bathes the Totten Glacier at its grounding line, sufficient to precipitate the start of irreversible melting in East Antarctica. Totten Glacier contains roughly the same amount of water as the entire West Antarctic ice sheet. That is, it's equivalent to at least 3.5 meters of global sea level rise. So adding the melting of Totten to the melting of the West Antarctic would double the amount of sea level rise globally to 7 meters over 20 feet, for those of you who, like me, didn't grow up with the metric system. That sea level rise would, of course, endure for millennia. From a human perspective, forever. This despite the fact that the overshoot of atmospheric carbon dioxide that launched the melting was corrected later by carbon dioxide removal. The temperature itself might even later come back down, although that would be long after the accumulation of carbon was reduced. Can we count on nothing like this hypothetical scenario, the scenario that Totten goes the way of Thwaites, won't happen? That's the gamble taken by less ambitious mitigation now. Alternatively, 
What an exciting privilege it is to belong to a set of pivotal generations with the opportunity to carry out a once-in-the-civilization transition, one of history's great revolutions, rivaling the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, whose dark side we're now trying to confront. The energy revolution, the building of a carbon-free energy regime, can potentially not merely limit climate change, but create a cleaner, safer, healthier, smarter, more diverse, more technologically advanced, and perhaps even more just world. It will naturally have its own dark side. We're already finding, for instance, that the exotic materials in the batteries critical to renewables bring their own problems for both extraction and waste management. But if we could bequeath to future generations normal problems, not extraordinary dangers, we would have made an exceptional contribution. Some members of future generations may be glad that we rose to that occasion and may remember us proudly. So we now have plenty of time for questions, and shall I call on people? Or do yes, you please. Okay. No, you should. I will call on people. And there are microphones, and we'd like you to use them, okay, if you could, for purposes of recording and also hearing. So we would like to volunteer, especially students in the workshop. I would love to have you volunteer. Uh, okay, Christine. I've got a microphone. Wait for me. Wait, wait for the microphone. So the mics are also for me because uh, my hearing is shot. So. Uh. Um, so my question would be at the individual level, since not all of us will be in the position to make like um, the kind of sweeping policy changes that you advocate for. So what can like an individual do to be part of like making sure they're on the right? Mm -hmm side of history. Oh. So if we're not remembered fondly, at least, you know, I will be the one. <laughs> right, right. Well, I don't think there's any general formula. I mean, I think in general, people should make the contribution that they can make to rapidly reaching zero carbon. Make the, make the best one they can make. If being an environmental lawyer is what you can do really well, that's the thing to do. If political organizing is the thing you do well, that's it. We obviously need all sorts of entrepreneurs and uh, technology uh, folks to come up with uh, new technologies for all sorts of different purposes. Uh, and there's no doubt money to be made, <laughs> too. So, you know, it's not... I, it's certainly, you know, not that everybody should start giving speeches about climate change by any means whatsoever. It's, I would hope that, that everyone in their, this is, there's no real philosophical argument for this, but just my own hope would be that everybody would make some effort to do something and that a lot of people would make a really 
big effort. I, I don't know how you decide uh, when you've done enough, but it, it does seem, and I, I'll be interested if you think it's, it's crazy to, to, that I'm trying to lay on you this sort of extra heavy job here, like defeating the Nazis. But I mean, it, you know, it seems clear from the science that it's now or never, and uh, that is now or never for keeping climate change at, at a, quote, reasonable level. It will still be important not to let it get worse and worse and worse. So, the, you know, the, the battle won't be over until the, until the carvings of the oil. Sorry, I'm, I'm filibustering. I'll, I'll start giving shorter answers. Uh, yeah, another question here. And say your name, because I don't know everyone's name. Wait till you get the mic, though. And what? Hi, I'm Addie. I'm a master's student here at the theory. Um, you mentioned that um, there's the need for international social programs and um, aid to help, especially poorer countries that are unquestionably um, experiencing greater costs from climate change. And that um, similarly, the, there's unequivalent levels of risk. And, uh, costs between different nations based on different levels of socioeconomic um, development and environmental factors. Um, to what extent, if any, do you think that the obligations involved in mitigation and adaptation um, should be based around those differences on a national and supposedly should be based around based around those differences in kind of costs and benefits, um, particularly. In the balance between mitigation and adaptation, for example, now, if that mm. okay, I, there there are a number of facets to that. I mean, it's what you, you can't say how much responsibility a given nation has for dealing with climate change without giving an argument and explaining it. But and I'm not going to try to do this uh, here. But I I think it's fairly clear that a lot of us pretty wealthy nations have quite a bit of responsibility. And in many cases, we have responsibility to bring about emission reductions, which are greater than the amount of reductions that would make economic sense for us to make in our own country, right? So just for uh, pure efficiency reasons, it would be better if quite a bit of that investment were invested where there will be a bigger bang for the buck in a, in a society where, where costs are lower. That's one factor. Another factor is, it seems to me, if you have a country that's sufficiently poor, and among the things it would like to do are move its people out of poverty adapt to climate change that's already occurring and bring about a transition in its energy system from a fossil fuel-based one to a non-fossil fuel-based one, but it doesn't have enough money to do all those things. In fact, it's almost certainly going to choose to lift its people out of poverty and to adapt to the dangers, and so it's not going to have money to do the energy transition, and so it'll either stick with the old infrastructure or maybe 
or, and or buy whatever's the cheapest infrastructure, which could in some cases be uh, fossil fuel. But if we, while doing fulfilling our own responsibility, would transfer some money to them, they could um, carry out their own energy transition. That is, we provide them with the funds they don't have to do the to do the third thing. Is that? Am I talking about what you were actually asking? Yeah, I think that makes sense in terms of sort of the same responsibility in a way, but aiding in the actual execution is how I'm interpreting your response in a way. That be. Say that again. Sorry, we've lost the mic. Just you. I think the answer is yes. That I. It was. Okay. Sorry. No, it's not your. Kevin, and then then do that. Um, my question is about the structure of the gamble. Yeah. And um, usually, if there's sort of irregular costs over time, you might have an insurance policy to help smooth costs. And I'm wondering if, let's say we're starting now and we have to outlay costs, maybe we would spend the money now, but then push some of the debt onto future generations. You know, if you're behind the Rawlsian Bill of Ignorance, generations might say, we want an insurance policy to make mm -hmm. sure that all generations pay the same amount. Uh, and I'm curious what you think about some sort of intergenerational cost moving. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the key thing is to, is to carry out the mitigation now, right, to get it done. Uh, I would think first you should do as much to reduce emissions as you have responsibility to do. If, if the amount you could easily do exceeds your responsibility, then in that case it might make sense to uh, transfer the, some of the costs forward, and people have, have argued for that. But I'm not sure, I mean, this is partly an empirical question. I'm not sure whether uh, the amount that uh, we can do in the immediate future anyway exceeds our, our responsibility. Of course, and an intermediate choice, of course, is you could just choose to benefit future generations. So there's what extreme? First, you fulfill your own responsibilities then, you know, there are various reasons you can give why you, you might want to do something that benefited future generations, even though it wasn't your responsibility. If you dealt with all of that and you still could make uh, sensible investments that would reduce emissions, you might uh, pay for it by creating debt for future generations. It's certainly... Uh, more worthwhile than a lot of the things we're doing now that are creating debt for future generations. Okay, Ben is next. Can you introduce yourself to Henry? Hi, I'm Ben Lawrence. I'm a lecturer in law and philosophy and human rights. So I want to ask you about two thoughts that you have. I mean, one is this the framework of intergenerational justice. Uh, which you know we're introducing with a, a kind of Rawlsian sort of apparatus, and there was the thought about uh, the distribution of risk mm -hmm. um, as a kind of benefits and burdens that were distributed. And then there was the very interesting other 
set of ideas that I didn't quite see how you were bringing the two together. Uh, the other set of ideas was that uh, this isn't how history works, that um, there are times where the cards fall where they do, and there are certain challenges mm -hmm. that arise, and the idea is silly, that, um, that there ought to be some silly, and, and a, silly because ahistorical, uh, that, that it, it be applied across the generations. And I found both of these m moving, hmm. but I wasn't sure how they lived together, yeah. so maybe you could say a little more. Yeah, well, <laughs> they may well not fit together. I mean, I, the, the latter I, I'm actually very interested in because it just kind of hits me that this seems to be how it is. I mean, you, you can say, well, why do, why do I have to fight the Nazis? And the answer is just, well, either you do it or it, it doesn't get done. And, and um, I mean, I, I still think there would be limits, obviously. I mean, I think, you know, every person has some rights to enjoy some kind of at least decent, if not flourishing, life. And so um, at some point, you, you will have done all that could be expected of, of you. But that would be about you, not about the generation. Um, and the first thing, I, I don't mean to be appealing to any sort of Rawlsian um, theory of justice. In fact, the, the, the main thing I'm trying to do is get away from theories of justice for this purpose. I'm trying to get away from theories of justice and argue that continuing business as usual constitutes harming people. So it's not are we uh, distributing something fairly, it's that we are creating problems that will blight people's lives and so we should stop creating those problems. And so in some ways, there's n there isn't an issue of distribution. The issue is just stop doing destructive, harmful stuff. And there, it seems to me, there, there isn't a question of fairness. I mean, what is it fair for you to do? Uh, you should do whatever it takes to stop <laughs> um, wrecking other people's lives. So, I mean, uh, as a imagine you know a lot of the writing about climate change is about theories of intergenerational justice I in the strict sense I'm not talking about intergenerational justice that is I'm not talking about fair distributions I'm talking about um, stopping harming um, that doesn't answer the question how to put the two things together I'd like if anybody has if anybody thinks the the thing about you know, the last bit about um, it's now or never and so on is just rubbish. I, I'd, I'd be happy to hear. I, uh, I don't, looks true to me. <laughs> yes, that right here. Hi, my name is Liz Moyer. I'm, I'm in the Department of Geophysical Sciences. I'm a climate scientist. Um, right. So, I wanted to give a little background on this idea of debts and, and then ask a philosophical question about it. Um, so in my understanding, um, which I'm going to be careful because this is being taped, um, uh, what happened was people, for various political reasons, had certain objectives 
where they wanted to define a limit because they must keep climate under a certain temperature limit. They felt like this was a, something that was useful and sellable and convincing to people. And the problem is the limits are really not possible without an enormous amount of economic gain. Mm. And they went to the people who do integrated assessment modelers, which is not climate modelers and they're not actually really scientific because they can't be falsified. So there's a philosophical distinction. Um, and they said, please provide scenarios that keep us under this target, and that couldn't be done. And so they basically put in something that's more or less magic, right? And then, then this magic thing happens, <laughs> right. and, and it's at low cost because we just make that assumption, and so yeah. that this CO2 goes down. So the question is, uh, how does science respond to the pressure that comes from the political people who say, oh, I know it's not really true, but this is effective, and this yeah. is this is what people want to hear. I mean, there's right. a lot of that, and that's where this comes from. And then it filters into the discourse, and people lose the distinction between what is a known scientific fact, what is speculation, uh, what is politically motivated argument, uh, and those things become blurred. Yeah. And as a scientist, it's extremely uncomfortable, but it's also not necessarily the correct thing to do to withdraw your position of philosophical security, where you say, I'm mm. going to speak to mm. my air bars. Um, but it's a very hard problem, and whenever someone says facts, it immediately we become agitated because here right. it is, this yeah. blurring of science and, and politics is happening all over again. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to make the modelers the, the villains. I, I do understand that, that you know, they were asked, what would you have to do to keep the temperature rise to 1.5 or to 2? And they said, well, you'd have to pull out a lot of the uh, carbon dioxide that we're going to put in there. The, the, my one criticism of the modelers is I think they could make it a lot clearer how close we are to actually being able to um, make these things work at scale. But I think what you said is exactly what keeps happening. And this is a big political problem. I mean, ever since 1992, the politicians have been going to the scientists and saying, is it still possible that we can keep uh, climate uh, change to a rise of two degrees centigrade? Show us how that would be possible. So in 1995, the scientists said, well, here's how you could do it. Then the politicians don't do anything. But then they come back in 2000 and say, could we still keep it to two? How would we do that? And the scientists showed them how they could do that, but they didn't do it. And so, as, as you said, now we're up to where the only way you can do it is with, with a bunch of negative emissions using technologies that, for the most part, uh, aren't feasible. And I, I have an, an, a separate article about BECS, but I mean, the big problem about BECS, uh, and this relates to things Martha knows about is, is you, you use so much land and water that there's a real danger of driving food prices really high uh, unless, as I said, meanwhile everybody's become vegetarian. Um, and then there's the passing tipping points problem. But Am I distorting what you... Yeah. I mean, 
So the other thing is, of course, our physical scientists get very upset when these injury assessment models are lumped in the same category. You think of them as bad economists, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not physical science. It's kind of a, it's, it's a merger of a lot of things that can sometimes end up, uh, it's productive yeah. stuff to be, but it can sometimes end up being not science and not, and not, uh, you know, not anything. Mm-hmm. We have to make scenarios about the future, but, but, but those scenarios are, you know, non-falsifiable thought exercises based on certain assumptions that, mm-hmm. like you said, people will come around and say, oh, don't, don't talk about them. Philosophy doesn't have error bars. Okay, we have, I see three hands, and so I think we'll take those three, and then we'll adjourn to the reception out in the hall where you can talk to Professor Shu more informally. So David, and then Ben, and then Taylor. Thank you. Um, Two questions about the structure of the, your argument, really the first part, where you're talking about what we should do with generations. And there you seem to say two things that are assumptions that maybe we can question. One is that the cost of doing something mitigated is very, very low today, is your initial assumption. And I guess the question is, well, it's sort of easy if you say there's no cost today and no harm in the future. You don't need a lot of philosophy saying don't do that. Right, so the harder question for the philosopher is, well, what if it's really costly today? Mm-hmm. Then how, how do we think about the problem? That's, that's one we should take up. Okay. Really another cost, but let's assume a hard one. And then how do you think about that? And the second assumption made, which made the problem kind of easy, was you spend a dollar today mitigating and you reduce the risk in the future, is what you're assuming. It's, we shouldn't even realize risk on the future was your conclusion. But let's not make that assumption, make the hard one saying, no matter what we do, we impose risk on the future. They're just a different sort. No matter what we do, what? We impose risk on the future. If we spend a dollar uh, on um, windmills, we don't spend a dollar on medical research or something else. And so it really is a risk-risk trade-off. So I, thought you, I think you made the case for doing something way too easy by seeing zero cost and only one-way risk. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what you think about, well, it's really expensive to, to mm-hmm. and we're going to impose what's going to teach no matter what we do. So yeah. what's, the, what's the answer on the heart? Right. I didn't mean to assume that costs are terrifically low. I meant to assume that if you distributed whatever costs there are fairly, you needn't um, make anybody worse off than those be, but maybe that's that's just obviously not true. I mean, if, uh, I mean, you know, I was thinking about you don't, you don't want to put all the costs on the coal miners when you get rid of the coal, but you can take care of the coal miners so that they don't bear the whole thing, so you don't make the coal miners worse off. Um, and I, I didn't. So I didn't mean to be appealing to cost, but maybe, maybe what you're saying is I am implicitly because I'm assuming we're not making anybody worse off, and so I'm assuming. Okay, I see. Okay, that's a problem. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll have to work on that. Uh, 
But the, what I mainly meant to appeal to is that the problems will get much worse so that if at some reasonable cost we could prevent uh, some pretty terrible stuff happening by acting now, but that would cost more than it would cost if people acted later, but that would allow more of this stuff to happen, I think it would be better if we went ahead and, and, uh, and spent the more now. I mean, you don't want to just do least cost over time in that kind of sense, I wouldn't think. Um, so I've lost the... No, it's the risk, right? Oh, risk, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. You're, you're, um, everything you're doing is, is imposing some risks. It's just, it seems to me that choosing not to mitigate where you could fairly clearly mitigate, and this is, I guess, is where my assumption that there's not much cost is coming in, um, is, um, but you can see that, that the much greater risks are going to come later uh, is the wrong thing to do. The other thing is, I mean, I don't know how to, ha the other of several things here I don't really know how to handle is this thing about the social fabric coming unstuck. But I'm really impressed by that um, Parker book. I mean, he doesn't claim, you know, that the Little Ice Age caused the Thirty Years' War. But it's just, but it is true that the Little Ice Age did disrupt agriculture, did make food prices go up, so you had a lot of peasants who were already unhappy who now got quite a bit unhappier. And uh, that contributed a lot to, to the political conflict. I think actually in the second half of the talk, you kind of answered David's question by saying, well, even if it costs a lot, as fighting the Second World War mm -hmm. did, well, that's our job. And we just yeah. happen to be the only ones who yeah. are there to bear that burden, and we better do it. Yeah. So that, that's how you would, I mean, back to Ben's question, bring, mm. bring the two parts of the talk a little bit more together, I think. So, Ben. Hi. Um, this is uh, something that came up during your talk. It's a bit inchoate in the way I'm going to phrase this. I apologize for that. Um, so I'm interested in this, uh, this it's just our job thing, this idea that, that certain generations just have things thrust upon them. Uh, and I'm interested in that in conversation with your wanting to bracket off the discussion of climate change from the greater question of justice, broadly. And I'm wondering if you could just borrow from more of a continental discourse of the idea of like the event in Badu, or the idea of the call that Avi Horonel talks about um, as a way to think about this, or you know, the Levinasian and call the other, or something like the sort of continental ethics as a way to get at this sort of special circumstance that, that doesn't fit within the sort of Rawlsian justice uh, framework. Um, so I, I meant, what, what's the continental suggestion? So either the, the Bedouin idea of the event or the idea of the call, uh, something like uh -huh. that, or something like that, this, this sort of break. Event. Okay. Yeah. All right, that, that particular literature I don't actually know, so I, the, the real answer to your question is that, is that I don't know. But, but in a way, I'm saying, yeah, there's a sort of call. I mean, you, you um, the events cry out. <laughs> for someone to do something, and um, you're there. I mean, in a way, it's like the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, you can say, well, 
why is it the Good Samaritan's problem? It wasn't the you know, rabbi's problem or whoever the other guys were. And the answer is, he's there. If he doesn't do it, it won't get done. And that's it. Um, that's not much of an argument. Because, I mean, you know, you could say, well, but if it's not his problem and it doesn't get done, there you are. But, <laughs> but I mean, that, that seems to me to put, you know, really no value on, in the Good Samaritan case, no value on the, on the life of the guy in the ditch. And if you said about the climate change thing, well, so, you know, if we're ambitious, we can keep eight coastal cities in India from flooding by keeping the Totten Glacier from uh, melting. Uh, but, uh, you know, not our problem. I mean, that seems to me to come very close to saying, well, those people just don't matter much. Uh, if, as long as the sacrifice you would have to make is not, you know, so great that it's going to blight your life to deal with the thing. Um. Well, last question, Taylor, and once again, please do stay around for the reception and ask still more questions. Hi, so uh, my question is about the moral salience of unlimited risks. So your oh, great. thesis is that yeah. uh, unlimited risks are uniquely objectionable in some way. Right. Um, and it, it, but it seems like the unlimited nature of a risk has to do with how the risk develops over time. But that's a different notion from sort of the expected harm. And it, I definitely feel with you that unlimited risks are in some sense scarier or you know hmm. something along those lines. But are, is it really true that they're worse than other kinds of risks, from a moral perspective. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I, I would think so, in that because they're more severe, they're, uh, with a, they are risks of greater damage being done, and so that's worse than less being done. I mean, am I am I missing your? So, um, just to, so you might imagine comparing a risk that has a limit, yeah. but is presently much greater oh, than a risk that's unlimited. Oh, okay. The limit has to do with how yeah. it's over time. Okay, that would of course that would be hard, and you'd have to. Ideally, you'd like to know some probabilities and so on if. You mean if you're 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 comparing a present unlimited one, like we discover that we really may go extinct in three weeks or something, compared to this other thing where uh, there's no guarantee we won't, but we don't know. Yeah. Um, well, the <laughs> the present one would seem more. I guess would because it was more urgent. I mean, one argument. I don't know. I'd have to. I think, I think it's a really interesting question. I, but one argument would be the present one is really urgent because since it's gonna, since we, it's sort of here now, and we know it, it may happen soon. Then we've really got to deal with it right now, and other people will have opportunities to deal with the other one. Um, there's been, there's been a little writing about this sort of thing. Uh, there was a time 
this is back in my food and hunger days, but there was, there was a guy named Garrett Hardin who used to say that um, all this ethics is just, um, he, he'd give a sort of Malthusian argument that if you keep preventing famines, you just get bigger famines later, and so you should go ahead and have a small one now, and then you get the population down to where it's manageable. And, I mean, this is all nonsense, but, but, but what, one of the arguments people made about that was, well, let's deal with, let's not go ahead and have this one, and maybe we can deal with the other one uh, later, but let's just not accept the current one. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much. This was a great session. And, uh, thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.